Welcome to Rest and Recreation, which is part of workworkwork.works. In Rest and Recreation, we discuss the practical aspects of work-life balance and the sorts of activities that you can do to improve your own work-life balance. I am Michael Millward, and today I am discussing the new book, The Lost Diaries of Samuel Pepys, with the author, Jack Dewars. Hello, Jack. Hello. It's good to be here. Thank you very much for, for being here. I am, well, I'm sitting here nursing your book. I'm with a big smile on my face. I really enjoyed The Lost Diaries of Samuel Pepys. Oh, good. It is not what you're known for. It's not your first artistic endeavor by any stretch of the imagination, but you're not an author usually, are you? You're a filmmaker. That's right. Yes, my background is in film, TV, advertising and web series. Um, and so this was a bit of a departure for me. Um, although I have I, I have written nonfiction before uh, as a kind of, you know, as, a, as, a, as another life, a side hustle, as they say, going back quite a few years now. But yeah, this was my first foray into writing uh, fiction in novel form. Uh, screenwriting I've done, but not not novels. Well, if people are interested in some of your films, and I would recommend them, there is a Shalom Kabul, which I enjoyed immensely, and uh, Night School is an internet series. All of them are available on the jackdewers.com website. But today we're going to talk about The Lost Diaries of Samuel Pepys, which if you can hear any noises in the background, it is me holding this book. It is a very tactile format, large size and um, a good size font as well. But what drove the decision to change direction from film to, to writing novels? I didn't really see it as a change of direction, as a kind of broadening of horizon. I, uh, I had had this kind of idea to maybe attempt a historical novel in my head, but to be quite honest with you, I didn't really necessarily think I could do it, and that and that's not that's not false modesty. You know, my talents lie elsewhere. Was was my feeling, and um, I suppose I'm um, by association part of quite a literary world anyway, because my wife has written books for a long time, and a lot of uh, a lot of friends of ours are very kind of successful authors, and. That also had the effect of being really, really intimidating, because <laughs> you know, if you if you know a lot of people who can really do it, you know, the temptation is to kind of stay in your comfort zone and stick to the thing that you you know you can do and you know you're good at. But um, yeah, I suppose I overcame that by just writing it for fun and just kind of seeing where it went and playing with it and just kind of enjoying it before I was remotely thinking of doing it in any way seriously. So this is a sort of book that you would like to read? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I'm a big fan of historical fiction. Historical fiction really is kind of, in some ways, what got me into reading um, as an adult. And I, I don't mean that I didn't read, but I wasn't a voracious reader of fiction. Um, I was much more likely to read nonfiction. I really got into series like C.J. Sampson's Shard Lake series and Rory Clemens' John Shakespeare, the S.J. Paris books, all that kind of thing. And um, I've always loved history. I've always been kind of slightly nerdy about it. And then this gave me an excuse to, to kind of dip my creative toes in the water. But when I, lo I look at the films that you make, there's an element of fiction about them, but there's also an element of the recording of, of life and giving people a different perspective on that life. And mm, yeah. Pepys, you know, when Samuel Pepys 
was in many ways a similar type of person to that to what you're doing in film in his day which is the time around the return of Charles II, the Great Plague, the Great Fire of London, he was recording life as it really was being lived in his diaries. So he was like a, a documentary maker of his time. And what you've, I think you've done with the lost diaries of Samuel Pepys is almost like, yeah, it might be a work of fiction, it might be a work of historical fiction, but there's almost an element of it which is written in the same style as the diaries of Samuel Pepys. Was that intentional? Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really interesting observation. Um, and I'm glad you kind of think the style works. Yes, it, it was intentional um, because it, I, I'm i very kind of firm, and I, I say this in the um, in the historical notes to the book as well, that, you know, this these these diaries are fiction. You know, my Pepys is a fictional character. He is just based as closely as I can um, to the real peeps while kind of feeling authentic. But I also wanted the freedom to kind of, you know, to do my own thing with him and um, to treat him as the protagonist in my book. But that said, the world in which he inhabits, I took great pains to make as authentic as I could. I think the big mistake that you can make when approaching historical fiction of any kind, whether it's in film or whether it's in books, is to treat it like the past. And by that, I mean, these are not people who got up and kind of said, well, I wonder, you know, today, today in the 1669, uh, <laughs> you know, these are the historical things we will experience. And aha, here comes, you know, here comes uh, Lord Monmouth or whatever. You know, it's like people, people are just people. People were living their lives. And to them, it was not history, it's the present. Any more than us talking right now, um, you know, in August of 2022, it's not like we're, we we feel like we're living through history. We feel like we're living through now, but we are because history is happening all the time. Um, so it is part of the the um, part of the skill of historical fiction, and certainly part of what I was trying to do was to get to know that world well enough so that I felt comfortable in treating those characters like they were people just living their lives, getting up going to work, doing whatever they did uh, to stay alive. But above all, they are they are people and they have the same hopes, the same desires, the same anxieties, the same idiosyncrasies that we do, um, and also the same reasons to kill. Yes. I, one of the things as I was reading this, The Lost Diary of Samuel Pepys, was the, the feeling of it being very real. Um, I live near York where we have the... the Jorvik Viking Center, where you go back in time to the Viking streets of York and you get all the sounds yeah. and the smells of Viking York, um, Jorvik as it was called. The greatest school trip of my life yeah. was Jorvik Viking Center. It is an Center. amazing yeah. place, Absolutely. but actually reading you know, the lost diary of Samuel Pepys, it was, parts of that were coming to very much alive for me. This sort of being in you know, the Reformation, City of London, going to you know other places as well, and and almost the descriptions are not overly flowery as such, but they're very realistic. Well, I'm glad you think so, and I really do so like position you in that. I think that one of the things that is sort almost important in the story is to understand a little bit about Samuel Pepys himself mm -hmm. and how he wrote this diary 
he didn't exactly write it in English. He wrote it in a in a little bit of code right. of his own making, I believe. And they were his record of life in London. But they stop abruptly yeah. in his mid late thirties. It's not a mystery. He doesn't disappear. But the thing is, his life after he finishes writing the diaries in June of sixteen sixty nine, he lived for another thirty odd years. And he um, he was already quite a successful man when he stopped writing the diaries. He was clerk of the Acts to the Navy Navy Board, which was quite a senior position in the government. Do we have an equivalent of that today? Oh, that's a good question. Is that Ministry of Defence or First... It's not First Sea Lord. No, no, it, it's going to be more like a senior civil servant, that sort of thing. So he was a high flyer to get there. At that age, he was a high flyer. Yeah, and I mean, he's, he's a bit of a social climate, peeps. He's obsessed with his status. And as he's finishing his diary, he's just, you know, he's being kind of promoted and the people he associates with are getting more and more important. He he knows the Duke of York, that's the, the future um, James II. He's uh, Duke of Albemarle, who appears in my book. And all these, the, his friends are more and more influential. And um, that, I think, is why he stopped writing his diaries. Uh, because the kind of, the oft-repeated um, answer you get into why he stopped writing the diaries is that his eyesight was going. And yeah, he did have eye strain, but, you know, he did a job very successfully for three decades after that. And he, he we have letters he wrote. We even have a diary he kept later. It's just, it's very boring. It's just an account, basically. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, he, I think more um, to the point was that it was getting too dangerous to write down so many compromising um, and that's why he stopped it. Um, but yeah, we know the fragments we know of his life paint a picture of like what we see in the 1660s when he's writing this diary, you know, more than a million words. Um, it's just getting started. He became an MP. Um, he uh, was uh, the, the subject of a, a conspiracy. He was accused of treason three times. Um found innocent each time. They were almost certainly trumped up charges. He was thrown in the Tower of London. He, uh, at one point, he was involved in trying to set up an international spy ring. He was accused of piracy. And even the last written record we have of him, other than his will, is in the last few years of his life, he was um, a witness in a court case. This is in about, I think it was in about 16, kind of 98, that kind of thing. So he was quite an old man by then. And, um, he and a female companion. Peeps had a lot of female companions. He had a lot of female companions, yes, uh, which clearly continued into old age. But they were robbed at, at gunpoint by a, a highwayman, and the highwayman was captured. And Peeps went to the trial to confirm that, yes, this was the man, but also to plead for his life. So obviously, by then, he had quite a, a keen sense of justice as well, which is something I try and work with in the book, uh, try and sort of work into it. Um, what maybe, you know, how his character might have developed when confronted with the realities of how people who are not as fortunate as him live. Yeah, so basically, we know these little bits and pieces about his life. We know the kind of broad brushstrokes of it. But how tantalizing to think if he had kept writing a diary with the same level of detail for the rest of his life, what incredible secrets it would have thrown up. And so that's what the starting point to the Lost Diary Samuel Pepys. Yeah, and you fill in some of the gaps in between all of the information within it. And it is a very interesting and um, engaging read. It's a very tactile book. I keep on saying it, but it's difficult to put down. And the story is very strong. Mm -hmm. But from a 
a lifestyle change perspective. You have, mm. what shall we say, you've gone from being a filmmaker, which is a very social type of role, I think. I, mean, I yeah. live in a village that is increasingly um, being used as a film set. And to see the number of people who are engaged in some sort of activity related to that, there are lots of people around you doing Everybody knows what they've got to do, yeah. but this involves a lot of people. Writing a book yeah. is quite different, isn't it? Writing a book is very different. Yes, it is. It's a completely solo endeavor. I will say that the film, making a film, certainly directing a film, um, is a little bit like the bit you describe is a little bit like the tip of the iceberg. You know, all those kind of diagrams you get in books and you get the iceberg and then underneath the surface you've got the vast kind of bit you don't see and there is an element of that in that you know making a film isn't just the kind of the couple of weeks you spend on set there's an awful lot else that goes with it and some of that is solitary you know there does come a point where you just you know if you're directing um just as if you're acting you, know, you have to spend a lot of time sitting alone with a script and your thoughts you know you need to know what you're doing because when you do have a set that's busy and that is filled with a lot of people time is money yes. you know? <laughs> and if you don't know what you want to do then uh you know then that's going to kill you from from the start really um so yes so indeed it is it is a bit of a culture shock it is very different but there's more crossover than you might think um, because not only the sort of pre-production period that I described, but, you know, post-production is often just you and one other person in a room for, you know, weeks or months. So, yes, it is. The shock for me, I suppose, was absolute sole responsibility for everything. And that that's not just the kind of ultimate, the buck stops here responsibility that I'm used to. It's you can't delegate. Because filmmaking is collaborative, and that's one of the absolute joys. Don't trust anybody who kind of tells you that it's, um, you know, that that uh, you can kind of make films without any help, or that it's, you know, the ideas all come down to one person. Um, you know, it is a, it is a, a insert name of person here film, and that's where it ends. It's an enormous collaboration of very very talented people, and that's one of the joys. You know, I can't. Um, I can say as a filmmaker what I want. I can, I, if you want to get grand, I can demand it from, you know, costume and from, you know, production design and cinematography and all these sorts of things. But I can't do it myself, not to anything like the degree of skill these people have. And you can, you can dictate as a director. You can say, I insist on this thing. I think you're an idiot if you do. I think instead you should talk to your collaborators about what you want to achieve and hear their ideas because they themselves are experts in what they do and you might find that somebody has a much better idea than you and you're all making the same film and you're bringing all these talents on board it's hugely exhilarating if you listen if you collaborate writing is nothing like that it's just you <laughs> it's just you if you have a you might have a beta reader you might have you know you might have a uh, someone you show the manuscript to in time, when you've written your first drafts, you will have an editor who you work with. You know, other people do contribute to the book. And then as, as it gets nearer to the end, you'll have things like, 
you know, the design, which is was certainly very important to the Lustarius and the Peeps. But nonetheless, none of that exists without the work, which is like, you know, it's it's 90, 90% you sitting down at a desk on your own. <laughs> and that itself actually is, is quite intimidating if you're not used to uh, if you're not used to being a true solo person. Yes, and I suppose as well, you mentioned being on set and the collaboration with other people. Mm. You go to working alone during the lockdown period at home. The only other person in the in the house is a professional writer. Um, what sort of yeah. <laughs> opportunities did you take to um, seek the advice of the expert? Uh, to combat imposter syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have to say it was it was uh, it was an entirely seamless process because our creative lives um, have often been quite intertwined. My wife um, writes as um, well under three names, Christy Doherty, CJ Doherty and now Ava Glass. She's just written an amazing spy novel called Alias Emma. It's James Patterson says it's the next James Bond. It's wonderful. Anyway, um, she and I have always shared our first drafts, whether it's you know, the first draft of a book or the first cut of a film, um, we've always fed creatively into each other's work. And so that actually was a more comfortable process than it would have been had I not felt quite intimately involved with that creative process of hers sometimes. However, she did have to tell me an awful lot that she, you know, there's a lot of encouragement. She had to tell me a lot that she, she really thought I could do it. And there's also, of course, there is also the awareness that if you're going to do something like that, when your partner is very successful at what they do, there does come a point where, you know, you have to do it yourself. So I was careful not to overshare. You know, we'd talk about ideas and that sort of thing. But aside from, you know, kind of giving her the first few chapters and asking her what she thinks, I was quite careful not to share a draft until I'd actually finished one because, you know, Christie's is an opinion I trust creatively more than anyone's. And if you're so familiar with a creative work that you don't have distance from it, well, you can't give an honest opinion. So, you know, I, 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 I suppose in response to your question, um, mutual encouragement and feeding into ideas when necessary, but otherwise giving each other creative space, actually, leaving each other alone. That is also very important. Yeah, so it's a, it's a balance between being alone with the computer, writing your novel, but also knowing that there is there is help available should you need it. Yeah, there's input available if you need it. There's a sounding board. There is a difference, isn't there, between those two those two words, help and input. Yeah, there is absolutely yeah. an input. That's absolutely right. And um, there's also, I think, space is very important. And by that, I both mean you know the kind of the physical. Um, reality of sitting alone and kind of shutting the world out but also the space in which you choose to kind of compose the work and the my use of the word compose is quite deliberate there because you know sometimes the writing in fact maybe most of the time the writing and the creating doesn't necessarily take place at a desk you know the, the thinking time is often on a dog walk or, you know, when you're doing something else entirely. There's a, a, another writer friend of mine has a great way of putting this, which is you need to refill the well of creativity. And, you know, to, to use another metaphor, it's a little like driving a car. You know, sometimes you have to stop and fill it up, which means allowing yourself time to put down your own work, 
watch a film, read a book, listen to music, look at art. And then the funny thing is, is that when you're doing that, so often if you're stuck on a point, something will just present itself. And it's like your brain is subconsciously working it through. And then it's absorbing, you know, other kind of forms of art in whatever, you know, in whatever kind of medium they are. And then suddenly click, it all just falls into place because you have refilled that well of creativity. Mm, I'm not too sure. You're probably right. But I think there is a big advantage to all of these lockdown dogs that were purchased by people because they were working at home. <laughs> Thinking about it, I haven't got a lockdown dog. I had two dogs already. We had a puppy at the beginning of lockdown, um, who, which means that for the first kind of year of his life, he, he didn't really meet very many people. But um, yeah, we have we had um, two dogs and uh, at the time, three cats. And so we did have this sort of animal kingdom to keep us company. <laughs> yeah, but I do agree with you that, you know, taking the dog for a walk, somehow or another they do help you sort of put things into order you see things slightly differently because it is a, a completely different experience to work and i'm sure that those people who have the opportunity to work from home on a hybrid type basis whatever it is mm. if they have a dog and they take that dog for a walk during the middle of the day or whatever time um, they yeah. can come back from that walk having somehow or another i do not know how able to put the issue, the challenge, the problem they were dealing with before the walk seems to fit much better into place Absolutely. and Absolutely. a new perspective and yeah. a solution is there. Yeah, some of it is exercise, I think. Some of it is just getting out. Some of it is a change of environment. But yes, there is something about the sort of, I don't know, the companionship of a dog whose priorities are very different to yours. And yet also often their number one priority is making sure you're okay you know, and just kind of going off and spending time with them. Yeah, I do think there's a lot in that, definitely. Oh, any conversation with a dog will give you the best advice. In all said. things. It's all things, everything. It's like you can yes. sit there and talk to them for hours and they never get bored, but they always give you the best advice. <laughs> oh. Absolutely. <laughs> Lead to some interesting plot twists somewhere along the line. This is true. This is true. I am wondering, as if, as you are a filmmaker, whether, you know, and I ask this question as someone who's just by accident been given a role in a film, whether there might be a film in The Lost Diary of Samuel Pepys at all. I would love there to be. Um, there has been a bit of interest. Uh, I mean, people sort of in these things often say, oh, nothing concrete, whatever. But I mean, it's not even concrete. It's not even sand yet. You know, it's it's the very, very <laughs> earlier stages of interest. So I don't know. But yes, it would, I think, very visually. And um, uh, my approach to plotting the novel, actually, was uh, kind of similar to my approach of plotting a screenplay in that I actually did it like a scene-by-scene -scene breakdown and that sort of thing, which is, is not really done for books. So I did approach it... Um, kind of like not even a film actually I approached it more as a TV series with the sort of you know the A story and the B stories and the kind of the different arcs and that sort of um, so yes I don't know who knows these things are very complicated but I think it would make it really it would definitely it is very visually written and I wholeheartedly recommend it I have I've been nursing it during our conversation and really appreciate the time that we spent to actually explore it a little bit more, just giving it a flavor. But as our first rest and recreation um, book conversation, um, thank you very much for Jack Dewars for spending the time with me. Really appreciate it.
You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you to you for listening as well. I am Michael Millward, and you have been listening to a rest and recreation book conversation with me and Jack Dewars, the author of The Lost Diary of Samuel Pepys. You can find out more about both of us at workworkwork.works. Thank you very much.